whenever Hollywood tries to make a movie about the gospel, it always goes back to Augustine and Calvin. And that's the kind of God you have. You know, they, they, you know, it's like Kirk Cameron's behind every one of these things or something, you know. And it's just, it's not good news. So which, which kind of films do we see the influence of the gospel in? The Gospel in Movies, today on In the Shadow of the Cross. everybody to In the Shadow of the Cross. I'm Lauren Rosser here again with my friends Jim Durkin Howdy. and Michael Harden. Greetings. How are you guys doing? You staying warm? <laughs> Barely. <laughs> Barely. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're actually, we're actually going to be at a, a low of 10 degrees here in, in Texas um, in two oh days. Goodness. So, And last week, remember, I was telling you guys we were like high 70s so it's so weird here but i thought it would be fun to talk about it after we got off the the podcast last week the three of us just began chatting about movies and tv shows that we thought were quite profound um, from a theological perspective and the gospel perspective and then that got highlighted this weekend when i was watching a program that uh michaela pointed pointed lily and i to and i just went oh my gosh this show is just hitting the first point of the gospel about for all have sinned and uh, in a profound way. So I was, I thought this would be a fun thing to talk about today. Well, was this Jerry Falwell's biography? <laughs> I have on my list, when I put down the list of, of good shows, I do have one on there that comes close. <laughs> but uh, this was actually a show that is not a family show by any means. Um, so if our listeners are planning to run out and watch it, be aware. This It's called The White Lotus. Um, it is a hard rated R. So if, if you're, for our listeners, if you know, you're planning to run out and watch it, don't get mad at me. Just be aware that it is, um, it is not a family show. And when I say rated R, I mean, it's got everything in it that a rated R (laughs) program would have. So just so be warned. I I was thinking again. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So, but here's the thing that was so profound about it. It's a series on, on HBO. And uh, they, they have they just finished. Um, I actually ended up binge watching the second season as well over the weekend because the first season was so profound. And that basically, the White Lotus is a hotel chain, and the um, and so the first season focuses on their their resort in Hawaii, and it's all the rich people coming to the resort in Hawaii. And and when it begins, you think it's going to play on the typical storyline of okay, here's the rich people, and here's the poor workers that they're just abusing and treating so poorly and and all that but but the thing that just blew my mind was that it showed that just like i said for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of god it showed that the the rich yes they were manipulative they were controlling and they were dominating and 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 in love with money and oblivious to people's needs around them however the hotel staff and stuff was also just as greedy even though they didn't have the money, they wanted the money. And so they would manipulate the rich people to get a hold of their money. And and so 
I, I don't want to give things away for people who watch it, but it was interesting because some of the characters, like one who's this, who we would, you know, in typical circles, you would say, oh, she's a victim, you know, um, she was manipulating one of the rich people, attaching agenda to what looked like to be love because she was after her money to start her own business. So, so the, it, you had this um, paradigm where I was amazed at the writer because the writer, he, um, he, he blew my mind because he couldn't have had a dog in the fight in any arena. Um, on the political left, on the political right, on the um, on, on the side of wealth, on the side of uh, victim or oppressor. I mean, because the way he showed it, Michaela told me people would um, – a lot of people don't like the show. They get offended at the show uh, besides the – you know, how, how harsh it can be and stuff. But – when I watched it, I saw why, because it's just like we've been saying for the last couple of weeks, how the gospel is offensive. You're sitting there watching this program and you have a, you have a family, this rich family sitting down to have dinner and you would hear the people on the political right say all the nasty things that, you know, is stereotypical of the political right that, you know, that we hear and, and you're going, yeah, oh man, that's bad or whatever, you know, depending on where your politics is. But then somebody else on the political left jumps in and they see something and it's terrible. <laughs> and you're going, yuck too. <laughs> that, and, and so, and then, and then one of the things that was really profound is um, this mother and daughter are getting in this argument and, and the mom's basically kind of on the right wing rich point of view and the daughter's on the oppressor, you know, victim point of view. And, and the, and the mom gets really upset. She goes, you talk all the time about all these people that are hurting and wounded and need protection and, and, and loving all these people. But you don't even love your own family that's right here. And I was just like, bam, about fell out of my chair. I was like, oh, man, this show is not playing the, the typical pick your political party and, and push your propaganda for your side. I mean, it, it was an equal... Um, equally pointed out the sin in in all the camps and then and and then the thing that was amazing was the people there were um a couple victims on the show well everybody it actually everybody is a victim of the disease of sin is what you see everybody you can stop and feel bad for because the way they present it is here's this person doing this thing but they also they're complex they also do some good things or like the mom she's this terrible ceo woman and yet she made that profound statement you know, and so you'd see these things happen. But then but then the thing that was really interesting was the two people who were who you could truly say were victims in the show. Um, and and I, I don't want to give away who they were, but they were not who stereotypically are victims. And and you you find out they're victims as the show storyline progresses. You're like, wow, out of all these people. The two people who don't fit our stereotypical views in society of who the victims are, in this scenario, they're the victims here. And and so it, it really it really took everything down to a, a genuine interpersonal relational level of get out of your political frameworks, get out of all this nonsense, and look at the people right in front of you. And and so it was really good. And then season two, um, Michael, you'd like this. Season two, the whole thing theme of it was mimetic desire mm -hmm. and not just because oh that's what all movies do and all novels do they're actually sitting at a dinner conversation and one of the people brings up mimetic desire in the conversation so the writer is telling you this is exactly what i'm doing 
and and they and and the whole show is every single relationship or, or group because there's the different groups at, at this resort and the second seasons in in Italy in Sicily at a resort every group it's it's two people after something in every scenario it's they they're who but they play it out so well so it's complex so it's not just immediate oh this person wants out this person but you you begin to see how the conflict that's arising between all the different groups because they're after the same thing and how just like we talked about how when we look at Jesus on the cross and how that mimetic desire is what brings about violence and and all of that and and that's what it does in in, in the scenarios it escalates to the place of of violence and just um, um, strife and all kinds of just nasty stuff because it's in, in each group, there's there two, three or whatever people after the same thing. And, and, and one, one group in particular, they're, they're actually totally obviously imitating each other's desire. I mean, they like make it plain that they, this person is imitating that person. So it's, it's really good. So I, I just had to put that one out there for, uh, for the people who want to um have can, can tolerate some uh some serious rated r material but uh but but want to see some some definitely good entertainment stuff that uh gets to the core and and like i said it's um it, it shows how the gospel offends if, if you've got a dog in the fight especially in episode one you'll realize it because you'll you'll hear some political thing and, and you'll be like oh ow ow <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So, so there's my show to start out with. So, um, Hollywood um, has basically been stuck telling the same story that Shakespeare told, that the gospel and scripture tells, that the ancient mythologies tell. The, um, the story is a superhero story. And good and evil are clearly defined. We go back to the spaghetti westerns and, of course, into Star Wars and the Matrix, okay? And especially in horror films. Uh, horror films are, I think, the, the best genre to really understand this. So, for example, in the horror genre, um, you have zombies. Now, zombies are a new phenomenon. They, they didn't come about until George Romero in the 60s, you know. Right. Or, you know, and... Of course, there's all kinds of great films about zombies. The most redemptive film about zombies, oh, what was the name of it? It was the um, zombie guy that falls in love with uh, John Malkovich's oh, daughter. Yes, it's on my shelf here. Yeah, um, warm remember. Bodies. Warm Bodies. There is a gospel film. Uh, and, of course, yes. you have the whole baptismal scene where he's spread out like a cross at the end as he falls. I mean, it's wonderful stuff, right? The rebirth yeah. and the blood and the water. I mean, it's very Johanna in there at the end. But <clears throat> there is a movie that deconstructs horror films. And it does it. And I think that, like you had said, that there are writers in Hollywood that know the mimetic theory, you know. And uh, in um, The Last Cabin in the Woods, yeah, that's um, an intentional deconstruction of the entire horror genre using mimetic theory. Because you have the five different types of sacrifices. Yes. And then you have you have the, quote, government behind the scenes trying to keep the, the mechanisms got to be in control. And, you know, and, and then, of course, when it doesn't, what happens? Boom, all the ancient gods come back. They're angry and pissed, right? Yes. Brilliant deconstruction uh, of 
of this mythology from John Wayne to Rambo and beyond, you know? Yes. I think the challenge is how and where do we see the gospel portrayed in films without religious language? And this is really important. Right. Whenever, whenever Hollywood tries to make a movie about the gospel, it always goes back to Augustine and Calvin. And that's the kind of God you have. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, you know, it's like Kirk Cameron's behind every one of these things or something, you know? Yeah. And it's just, it's not good news. So which which kind of films do we see the influence of the gospel in? That's that's key for me. So I have two movies and one TV show, but Jim. No, I'm going to let you jump in first. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I have to say, if, if Jim, have you seen Cabin in the Woods? Um, not yet. No. If you have it, I, I highly recommend okay. it. It's uh, right. when he just broke down. No spoilers, but I was laughing when he was saying because sure. that ending, I was laughing at one of the particular monsters that did something. Yes, so. yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, it's excellent. If I were to go, okay, so the movie that I think captures the um, kind of the rationale behind discipleship and then the threat that disciples and a master can make to an institution. And that's Dead Poet Society with Robin Williams. Oh, yeah. That's a great movie. Mm-hmm. Excellent, excellent film. And again, at the end, what uh, there is there is resurrection power when those boys start standing up on their desks on and their saying, desks. Walt Whitman, oh, captain, my captain. You know? Very rude. The second one is a not well-known film at all. It's called The Insatiable Moon. You can Google it. It's a New Zealand film. Um, when Lori and I were there in 2012, we got to meet the director and the screenwriter and the, the, the novelist is the screenwriter and he's married to the director who's a civil judge by day, tries criminal cases. But when he, he wanted to make a movie, um, the, in, anyway, it's the insatiable moon. It's quite beautiful. If you ever get to see it and because it, it, it's about mental illness and it's about, the Church, um, beautiful film, The Insatiable Moon. Mm. Uh, but now it lasts for me. Um, so I just binged six seasons over the last two weeks of a TV show. The first three seasons were on Fox, and they were pretty straightforward. And then Netflix picked up the second three seasons, and they really got good, you know. What do you get when you take Second Temple Jewish angelology, that is the Book of Enoch, the Book of the Watchers, book one through, chapters 1 through 36 of First Enoch, which describes the fall, the rebellion in heaven, and the angels and all their names and the lieutenants. What happens when you take that, bring that into the modern world where Lucifer has become human? <laughs> and he's a very wealthy playboy, but he doesn't lie. He won't. He can't lie. He won't lie. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And um, he is a uh, uh, consultant for a detective uh, played by Lauren German uh, in the LAPD. So that's the thing. They're solving cases, right? But then there's this overarching story. Take this Second Temple Angelology narrative marry it with enlightenment questions about good and evil, the nature of suffering, is there a God, where is God, what kind of God is God, 
And in on top of that, if you're going to make a milkshake in a blender, throw in a little bit of Origen's doctrine of salvation, which includes the redemption of the devil. Oh, wow. And Tom Ellis plays the... I just fell in love with Tom Ellis as the character of Lucifer Morningstar. He's brilliant. And he only gets better season by season. He's just brilliant. I mean, um, so anyway, there, there's my three. I'm so gonna watch that, and that's and just so everyone knows to clarify that you heard him mention the name. It's Lucifer. Lucifer, on Netflix, six seasons. Very good. Oh, you'll binge it. Yeah, I'm I'm off the next two weeks, so I've got something to watch. <laughs> I think my all-time favorite is probably the first one I ever saw that all the way through it, I saw the gospel, I saw mysteries revealed, if you will. And this goes back a long way, back when I was a young man. <laughs> the Matrix, you mentioned it, uh, Michael. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's just, you know, some of the things, not not the obvious, not... Neo being called the one or things like that. I mean, okay, that's kind of obvious, but things like the whole concept of the Matrix and realizing that 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 works in a couple of ways. One, Mm -hmm. it works in, in the area of, you know, being duped into, you know, just what you see is what you get in, in the world. But it also works in the same way in religion, you know. Uh, you, you know, you think you've taken the pill that set you free, and really, all you did was take. <laughs> yeah, you still took the blue pill. You just got into a different matrix, you know. <laughs> you know, and and um, it, it's just uh, the unveiling of. And and I agree with you. It's good versus evil and things of that nature. You know, uh, I I get that. But it's just the uh, the little nuances that work all the way through the movie. That if a person's willing to look at it, it's like you know, yeah, maybe maybe the maybe I have kind of been blinded to what there is out there. You know, and. You know, I like the um, I like the concept of the rabbit hole. <laughs> you know, how, how how deep does the rabbit hole go? You right. Know, once yes. You, once you get into it, you know, and and the the other one is also another an old old movie, and um, that's the uh, the Christmas movie. It's a Wonderful Life. Wow. Lily and I were just talking about that. I'm curious to hear what you what your thoughts are on that. Well, I think the first time, you know, that it, it dawned on me that this wasn't just a stupid black and white movie that my dad likes to watch every year, you know, was when he was on the bridge. Mm-hmm. And um, he all of a sudden becomes aware of what the world would be like without him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I just, you're talking about, binge watching uh i work nights so i get an opportunity to do whatever i want you know (laughs) and every once in a while i'll get into a series i i haven't really been happy with uh any that i've watched uh lately but 
uh, I just went through all of uh, The Flash. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. And, uh, I, you know, there were things in there uh, kind of similar in, in a way to um, It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, the Flash goes back in time and he changes one detail and it changes everybody's life in his life, you know? And and I I was just like, you know, sometimes we don't we don't like the things that have gone in on in our life, but I become aware when I watch movies like that, I become aware of the fact that we really wouldn't like things going on if we had the power to change it or if we weren't there in the in the first place if we just weren't in the equation you know and it's like the person we married the kids we had the job career we chose all of that kind of stuff and and i'm not exactly a fatalist in by any means but i i just realizing that um yeah i don't think i would like to know what the world would be like if i wasn't in it yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. It, and it's funny because the thing that Lily and I were talking about was how the thing about It's a Wonderful Life that stands out to me is that it's one of the few movies, it doesn't have a vengeful ending. The, yeah. um, he gets screwed over by whatever that old guy's name is, Potter. you know, the, the main character. Potter. Yeah, Old, old Man, Man Potter. Potter. And, and they never end it with the, the typical take that. You know, right. something bad happens to him, you know, some terrible... It's It just ends with the community comes together around uh, the main character. Is it George? I think... Yes. George, yeah. Um, the main character comes around George and, you know, helps him out of his pit. And and that's it. That's that's the happy ending. There's, it's not... Let's go... Hollywood now, in most cases, would go show something bad happening to old man Potter, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and I like that they... they they don't even go there. And to me, that, that was some realism, actually, of, of how happy endings should be. There's there's not vengeance involved. There's not, uh, you know, not an act of revenge in there. Um, it's funny. There there was, if you guys remember that show back in the 90s, it was a Married with Children. Oh, sure. They, oh, they yeah. did a spoof on It's a Wonderful Life where uh, they showed Ted, uh, what's his name? Was it Ted Bundy? Ted Bundy, that... yeah. Yeah. Uh, I might be confusing him with a serial killer. <laughs> <laughs> Al Bundy. It was Al, Al Bundy, Bundy, not Ted Bundy. <laughs> Um, no. Al- <laughs> no, it was Ted Bundy. <laughs> they, they show uh, they show Al Bundy yeah. his life if if he, his family's lives if he's not there and they're all happy and rich and everything's going great and and and, and so the angels like oh oh no this is not good and then but then Al Bundy goes you got to send me back look how happy they are I can't let him be that happy <laughs> <laughs> so it's it exactly. pretty funny. Um, one for me that, um, and it's one that you mentioned, Michael, actually, but it's not for the same reasons that most people, um, like it because it does, if you take it on the surface level, it is good versus evil. And that's the original Star Wars trilogy. Mm -hmm. Um, the original Star Wars trilogy is, is totally at that, you know, if you just take it at face value, it's the good versus evil thing, Superman kind of, you know, kind of thing. But here's the thing I like about now Christians would say, I remember back in the day, they would go, well, see, you know, um, Darth Vader gets uh, redeemed at the end. And so it's kind of like the gospel, but 
But I go further than that because here's the thing that I caught after um, learning from you, Michael, about about preaching peace and and uh, the gospel being peace and putting away all violence. And and I I came to appreciate Star Wars at a whole nother level that that most people don't grasp at all. And and why I would throw out all the sequels um, because they undo the beauty of what was done in the original trilogy and what's happening in the original trilogy you've got the jedi and you've got the sith and the sith are power hungry and and um and you know the evil force and you've got the jedi they're supposed to be the 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 voice of peace and good and they're not they're, they're never supposed to use the force for attack and all this stuff but here's the thing they're using the same weapons as the sith they're using they're using their lightsabers. They're training in the same techniques and using the same weapons, the lightsabers, as the Sith do. So they're fighting power with power. So they're trying to use the very thing the Sith use to take over the universe to conquer the Sith. And they're getting nowhere. It's just a little bit one group's up and a little bit one's group down. And finally, when we come to the Star Wars trilogy, you just have Obi-Wan who's left as the Jedi and Yoda. And then they start training Luke. And they're training Luke in all the same techniques that they've used all the time. Ben dies, he goes to Yoda, he's being trained in the tech, all that stuff. Yoda dies, now Luke is the last Jedi. He's facing off with, in the final movie, he faces off with Darth Vader and the Emperor. And he's he's using his lightsaber and he starts whipping Vader's butt. And uh, long story short, he gets to the point where he almost defeats Vader, looks at, realizes, what am I doing? And then he stands before the Emperor and he, he throws his lightsaber away. And he goes... You're wrong, your highness. I am a Jedi, like my father before me. And and the emperor is stunned because he threw his lightsaber away. He's now powerless. He's defenseless. And and in that moment, Luke grasps something that none of the other Jedi did. We're supposed to be the peacemakers. We're supposed to be the guardians of peace. And you all been trying to fight this guy with power. And he gives up all this power. So the Emperor starts doing his zapping thing on Vader, I mean on Luke, and Luke's, you know, basically doomed and dying. And as he's crying out, his father, Vader, sees him dying and evil turns upon itself. Vader turns upon the Emperor and throws him down the shaft and Vader ceases to be Vader and evil is destroyed. The evil is destroyed because Luke threw away violence. And turn basically as we talk about love is not violent. He turned to genuine love. Said I'm and and see in in Christianity what we do is we say violence is a last re- you know typical Christianity evangelical Western Christian violence is a last resort. So you know they go along with Obi Wan and 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 Yoda and you know it's like so they're genu- genuinely good but you know but we 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 save that lightsaber for when we need it. Luke is the only one who when he's facing evil he throws it away. He's, 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 he knows he's probably going to die, but he's so committed to the path of the, that the Jedi have lost that he's going to embrace it completely. And that's what causes evil to implode. And I think of um, when we talk about Jesus on the cross, how he, um, he exposes the principalities and powers and, uh, and, and strips them naked. And, and that's what you see happen there is this whole, um, the, the enemy, they don't know what to do. It's like God's supposed to be violent. God's supposed to be vengeful. And he's not. And so the whole thing implodes on itself. Same thing at the end of the Matrix, Volume Three, where Neo lays down in the shape of right. a cross. All right. Places. Now, and what what you're saying? That's um, get off movies for just a second. That's the power of the cross. 
that's the power that there is in Christ's body. He says, the whole world will know you're my disciples because of the love that you have for each other. And the mystery of it is that it isn't always immediate. Right. You you manifest love and immediately your enemy, you know, he sets before me, you know, a, a table in the presence of my enemies, you know, and immediately the church continued to grow for 300 years before Rome started backing off and saying, wait, maybe, maybe we ought to embrace this thing here, you know. And, and, and I think, you know, all the disciples, except John, were killed. You know, Jesus said, look, uh, you're going to have some trouble in this world, but just keep loving. Just keep, you know, keep being uh, nonviolent. Be, be, keep being a pacifist and yeah. love. And ultimately, we're going to win this thing. <laughs> but in the meantime, some of you are going to die, you know. And that's not a message that we, uh, you know, when you were talking there, Lauren, I, I, I was reminded there there is a line in the Matrix that I, really uh i've always enjoyed it because to me it speaks a lot of what we're doing on this podcast it speaks a lot of um what my life's been about for for years and it's when morpheus says to neil i've led you to the door that's all i can do you have to walk through it right and 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 i think the the thing is is that when I listen to anybody, and, and people that know me know that I, I do enjoy reading books. I read all kinds of books on all kinds of subjects. Uh, if I hear about a new one, then I'm going to probably pick it up and read it, and I'm going to uh, choose not to judge it too quickly. It's like, weigh it out. Is something being said here? And every time we hear a... Um, something new, something that isn't the same old hash that we've been eating for 30 years at, you know, at our local, uh, you know, meeting house. <laughs> we have an opportunity because we're, we've just been brought to a door. We have to choose whether we're going to walk through that door or not. And uh, unfortunately, far too many, uh, you know, believers say, that's not a door I've ever seen before, so I'm not walking through that one. I don't know what's on the other side. Right. And, uh, so hopefully what we're doing here is bringing people to a door that they can uh, choose, and hopefully a lot of people will choose to walk through it. So anyhow, that's my uh, that's my take on the Matrix and, and uh, whatever. So... Well, let me, let me come back to another set of movies that I'm, I'm just, my brain is is going, Lauren. And there are three movies directed by Mel Gibson. The order that they were published in uh, was The Passion of the Christ, Apocalypto, and, um, oh, come on, Michael. You, uh, uh, Ridge, Heartbreak, or something, something Ridge, Heartbreak Ridge. Oh, oh, yeah, Heartbreak Ridge. With the, I, almost, I almost wrote that yeah. down earlier. Yeah. The thing is, is that <clears throat> they, they, the, if you put Apocalypto first, 
Apocalypto's mythology, sacrifice, temples, ancient gods, right? Yeah. The Passion of the Christ unmasks all that. You have all the same phenomenon, the mimetic crowds, the priests, the sacrifice of the cross, brilliantly done. And then um, Heartbreak Ridge is the impact. Hacksaw Ridge. It's Hacksaw, Hacksaw Ridge. Hacksaw Ridge. Yeah. No, that was that Clint Eastwood movie. Back yeah, that's why I had to look it because I realized that. Yeah. Oh, was it called Hacksaw Ridge? Yeah, it's Hacksaw Ridge. Okay. But the, the kid who's a Quaker is committed to pacifism. And yet he becomes the hero of the story, you know, more so than the soldiers who and their bravery. You know, in other words, I think what Gibson did through that sequence of three films was to show the mythology, deconstruct it, and then say this is what the world could look like. Wow. Yes. And I, and I've seen all three of those movies, and I love that you tied them together. That, that there's there's like a thread that actually goes through them, and that's awesome. Wow. And the mm-hmm. beautiful thing about the Gibson Passion of the Christ film, he avoided any Superman God concept. And in fact, what's brilliant about that is just as God, when you read the Passion narrative, there is no God. Yeah. There's people that believe in God, but there is no God doing any God stuff, right? And Gibson does the same thing in the film, except for the the one, the only the only notion that you know there's a God is where you see the way up in the sky, the camera is panning down on the cross, and then it drops like a, a raindrop down or a right. teardrop, right? That's the only notion you get of an above-below kind of thing. Gibson did a wonderful job with those films. Yeah, he did, and, and I love that they actually spoke, was it Greek in a... Aramaic. In, in the pa- Aramaic, yeah, Aramaic. I love that they actually did that. That was one of the things I, I loved about it. And uh, yeah. um, but it's interesting. You made me actually appreciate Apocalypto now more than I used to because when I saw it just as a standalone movie, you just go, "Man, it's kind of like that that uh, the Life White Lotus." Like, <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like the White Lotus. You basically go, "Man, people suck. They're violent." You know, it's a movie so dark and. Between Apocalypto and the Wolf of Wall Street, I'll tell you what. You're right, though. And that's the thing. Wolf of Wall Street, that's funny you brought that up because I didn't think of that one. But you're right. That's another one of those movies where you're watching you're going, man, this movie is harsh. It's, but then at the end, you're like, that is what a life is like if you completely self-indulge on every level. There's actually a parable there, you know? Because, yeah, you're just like, man, look look where it takes you, you know? But, but yeah, Apocalypto is like just unloosed unhinged violence just sacrificial violence to the max and then and then that violence meets higher violence that arrives at its shores you know exactly right (laughs) so you're just like oh my gosh it's just oppression meets oppressor you know on and on exactly but but i love that you tied it together because then you go to hacksaw ridge where it's that violence i'm getting goosebumps it's that violence continuing but now you bring peace into it. And now you've got somebody who's actually accepted the message of the cross, who is a peacemaker, who's, inter, who's involved, is, is existing in the midst of that violence and bringing peace. I think the, 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 the God of, of, of religion, Christian, Jewish, Islamic, mythic, whatever, the Janus-based God, <clears throat> the angry God in the end, the judge, right? What's really fascinating, and in, in, as you go through the um, 90s and 2000s, 
there seems to be a growing awareness that there is something about the beyond that is terrifying. And that's thus zombies. Zombies bring the vengeance of the future into the present. Mm, that's what yes. zombies are doing. They're you know, because they're post dead. And then they and they come back and they and they come now here's a nice thing. If there ever truly is a zombie apocalypse, Christians don't have to worry because zombies are looking for brains. <laughs> oh man. And you just got us all canceled. I can't believe you said that. (laughs) Anyhow, Hacksaw Hacksaw Ridge, um, the character the the movie was built around, uh, Desmond uh, Doss, I believe, um, was an actual character, war hero. Um, He was a uh, uh, Medal of Honor winner. Mm -hmm. And... He took an incredible amount of flack for making his stand, mm-hmm. for joining the army as a pacifist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Said, what are you doing? Why won't you carry a rifle? Right. We're going into war, right. you know, all of this kind of stuff. And he ends up coming out, and it's not the movie, it's his real life. The movie was made on his life. But he ends up saving, I don't remember what it was, 70, 80 people, yeah, something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. It, was an amazing, uh, it was an amazing night. Under incredible fire uh, cover from the enemy, and uh, he's rescuing people's lives when nobody else wants to step out there and do that. The the you know the macho guys and the mm-hmm. it's like hey I'm ducking and covering here you know and he's like no I'm saving lives here you know and he, and he also carried away some Japanese soldiers as well yes 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 he did, yes, he did. yeah and, and and what's amazing is I read an article on that movie Jim because you're talking about the guy's real life and uh, mm-hmm. Mel Gibson said he left things out of it that were from the real life story because they were just too hard for people to believe if they saw it in the movies. It was that incredible that they, that people wouldn't have even bought it. Right. Yeah. I, I, that's, yeah, that's pretty cool. That is cool. Yeah. Yeah. I I think anytime a person chooses to, in today's world to be a, 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 a true pacifist, he's going to take flack from people. (laughs) <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah, especially if you live in Texas. <laughs> yes. <laughs> California might be a little different. <laughs> in Lancaster County here, of course, <laughs> we have an easy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They're not a, yeah, there you're not, not a problem. <laughs> it's just that everybody's passive-aggressive here. <laughs> With their buggy races? Well, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've been here in Lancaster now 17 years, and it really is funny. I, I mean, I worshipped and taught in Mennonite Church from 2005 to 2013, and I've known a lot of different types of Mennonites and Amish and stuff. And, uh, yeah, they're pacifists, but they are passive-aggressive. They really are. Wow. They wow. have not learned to tame that aggression. They've just simply learned to shut it down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
interesting. Yep, that's that thing I was talking about a couple of weeks ago as a teacher having to learn to shut that part down, the 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 passive aggressive part down because that's easy to hang on to. You know, you can get that jab in there still. You that's know, right. you know if, if if people are looking for a. Uh, a family movie that with Jim, when you were talking about the church being stuck into a mindset for 30 years and, and, you know, um, not willing to walk through the door, a movie that immediately came to my mind was that, that one about the penguins, happy feet. Um, oh. have you guys seen that one? No, it's, yes. it's actually, my, my daughter makes fun of me cause I love that movie. And it's like such a, it, it's, it's, I think it's well-made, but it's, it's basically, um, this, this, the penguin, they all sing, they all, and it's really well done. The music is very good on the movie. The production value is very high. And it's so funny cause it's made by the same guy who made all the Mad Max movies and talk about extremes. It goes from, you know, <laughs> Mad Max road warrior and all that. And then to happy feet. And those are, when I found out he was the same director, I laughed so hard cause it was so awesome opposite extremes but anyway um basically the penguins they all sing and like um um and and so they all would sing together and they have the elders of the penguin you know of the the emperor penguins and and, you know they all commune together and this is how they've always done it and they sing so they can get the fish and and uh but the fish numbers have been lowering and uh and a big reason they've been lowering is because of the um the, the overfishing in the oceans and um from from people and um his parents are basically like the, the the of the of Happy Feet, the the main character who's born. Um, they're the two of the great singers in the in the Penguin Colony, and he's their son is born, who's voiced by Elijah Wood, and he um and he he can't sing at all. He they, they have him say ah, it's just squawks, you know. But he he keeps trying to do this little uh, little tap dance, and and they're like. What's wrong with you? What's wrong with your? You know what's wrong? There? The, the, the a dad does imitates Elvis, and the and the mother is basically in Marilyn Monroe style. It's really funny. And the dad's like, "What? What are you doing there with your feet, son? You know, you need to need to sing, not dance. You know, whatever." <laughs> and he's but but the whole thing is that this penguin he can't sing, but he dances, and and everyone thinks he's weird. He ends up getting kind of scapegoated and outcast mm-hmm. and all this mm-hmm. stuff. Long story short, he ends up in a in a zoo. And tap dances in the zoo and gets the attention of all the people in the zoo. So they're like, what's going on with this? So they go take him back to his colony and watch the colony. And long story short, they end up realizing that if they dance, they get the people's attention so they can stop the overfishing. And so all the colony changes and realizes we need to change our message from singing. We need to start dancing. And so they start dancing and then the it changes the whole, you know, brings about the happy ending and stuff. But, but, but the whole thing of the, you have the elders who are upset with this young penguin. He's upsetting the order. He's upsetting the way, not realizing that he's a gift to them to save them. So I, I thought that was a, I think that's a good family movie as far as kind of getting locked into tradition and missing what's important. Wow. Singing penguins in my day, all we had were singing nuns. Exactly. Flying, nun, flying nuns or whatever they were. <laughs> the flying nun. Yes. <laughs> that goes back a long way, Michael. I know, I know Jim, I know. <laughs> Sally Field. Yes. <laughs> I I remember even as a kid, because she was a flying nun was before my time, and I remember the rerun came on, and my friend and I were at his house, his dad was watching the rerun, and we were like, are you kidding me? <laughs> we're like, you think my generation's weird? Like what's wrong with yours? You got flying nuns. It's it's so weird to see reruns or whatever 
of shows that I was locked into as a kid. And now look at it and say, oh my gosh, I can't believe I, you know. And I I remember on Facebook here recently, somebody put uh, something, you know, what movie or TV show or whatever created in you the the most fear you ever experienced, you know? Yeah. And I thought, okay, well, there's a few. There's, you know... um, the Twilight Zone, you know, a couple episodes on that. But but the first one was Laurel and Hardy meets Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> and, oh, my gosh, it scared me so bad. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Laurel and Hardy, <laughs> you know, a fear movie. It's like, yeah, uh, you know, but it's perspective. But what you're talking about, Happy Feet, I, li- I, I like your analogy. I th- I think it's great. We can get so stuck in this is the way we do it. It's the, you know, cutting the, the end of the, the ham, you know, and why why do you do it that way? It's like, well, my mom did it that way. You ask the mom, why do you do it that way? Well, my, my mom did it that way. You ask the grandma, and she says, because I had a small oven, you know. And it's like, we get so stuck in, okay, we're penguins. We sing. And it's like, no, we follow what's built within us, you know, uh, you know, and, and especially when the times and the seasons change and singing is no longer accomplishing the end goal, then it's like, okay, well, you know, I, I remember my dad used to, uh, used to always say that principles that are based on the word of God never change methodology always changes and i and i think that's i i think we have to remember that that there are principles according to the word of god that are living principles but there's methodology that many times we as christians we put those right up there equal with the those principles and it's, we'll never change the way we do things around here. And it's like, but it's not working. You know? Right. It's like, yeah, it's not working. But it's funny, Jim, because you were talking about Frankenstein being the movie that, that scared you. That makes me feel better because the, the movie that terrified me the most in my childhood was Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, oh. that's, that scene at the end when they open the ark and the angels of death fly oh, out. and. And uh, I'd I love that movie, but but I I kid you not, I could not sleep at all that night. I snuck into my parents' office and grabbed the little black and white TV we had in there oh, and put wow. it in my bedroom just to turn it on to have something in there. And the I was terrified. To, I was terrified to go in the hallway because I'm like, one of them angels of death is going to fly around the corner and look at me in the face, and I'm going to melt. Your face is going to melt. <laughs> off. Melt like a popsicle <laughs> Exactly. So so that's that actually makes me feel better, Jim. Now that because uh, I told my students that about the first movie that scared me because they were talking about that and they laughed at me. And now I can say, hey, but my friend was scared of a, a Laurel and Hardy movie. <laughs> yeah, thanks I had a, a lot. <laughs> when I was, when I was seven, 17, my folks left the suburbs, beautiful suburbs, moved us out to the middle of nowhere, California, town of about 600. My stepfather wanted to farm, so I got himself a little almond ranch and... I didn't have any friends, you know. I mean, I'm new there, and it's uh, 
the high school only has 40 in their graduating class. I mean, it's a little teeny town, right? I can, you know. <clears throat> but my next door neighbor, he was a cowboy. And of course, in those days, cowboys and hippies were two sides of the <laughs> spectrum in high school. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, rednecks and long hairs. And, uh, but we became friends, Glenn and I did. And uh, one night we decided he, he had some buddies over and we're just drinking beer like we always did. And we went to the movies. And we got back from the movies. And, of course, Glenn's mother was going, four of us climbed into that queen-sized bed with the light on and slept together. <laughs> what the movie did we go see? Uh, let's see. So what, what year was this? This would have been exactly summer of 74. 74. Now, was that The Exorcist? Yes. <laughs> yes, because that still to this day ranks as one of the scariest movies ever made. If so, I see if I see an advertisement for it, I turn the page. Right, hey, hear the music for it. Radio's off. It's like get thee behind me. I ain't going back to that. <laughs> that is so funny. It's so weird how so everyone is. But how everyone's wired different for what they're afraid of. Because I remember laying on my mom's bed and and she had a TV in her room and we were we were watching The Exorcist was on TV and I found it kind of scary but didn't bother me that much. Not like that Raiders of the Lost Ark movie did in the Raiders of the Lost Ark one. I I, this wasn't that long after seeing it. It's uh it's it's just weird the the thing that uh, how different things trigger different people you know as far as fear goes. So yeah. well, yeah, it is. Uh, you know, it, you talk about the 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 Exorcist. Uh, totally off subject, but fun anyhow. I had a uh, person call me up several years ago, probably in the early '80s, and said, uh, "I know who the Antichrist is." I said, "Okay, <laughs> here we go. Who's the Antichrist? Reagan." Reagan, how do how do you come up with that? That movie, The Exorcist, it revealed the Antichrist. The Antichrist's name is Reagan. That was oh, the name of the girl. No way. That was the name of the girl. The right, exactly. Wow. <laughs> so that that's the kind of the antithesis of what we're doing here. We're talking about movies that kind of reveal more of a gospel message and, and say use the movie to reveal who the antichrist is so go <laughs> <Exactly>. figure <laughs> i think it's time for your meds no <laughs> <laughs> well, film, film and culture art you know i mean they've always uh there's always been an, a, a real strict correlation between the symbolism and what's going on in in the culture and yes. um yes. I you know, we've been getting we've had a pop apocalyptic movie after apocalyptic movie now for the last twenty years. You're right. Earthquakes, right. meteors, tsunamis, aliens, you know, the the world's gonna be destroyed. And well and and why? Well, because we are what How and Strauss call that fourth turning. We're at the end of any number of historical cycles in this one decade. I mean, there's many, many reasons phenomenologically and historically but but it's as it's as though the art world is getting us prepared for what's about to come 2023 is going to be a very 
tough year. Yeah. And 2024 to 2026 are going to be downright brutal on this planet. Uh, stuff that we haven't seen in our lifetimes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I don't think you have to be a prophet to, to get that. Uh, I'm no prophet. I, I, I just, you know, read the, the signs of the times. Uh, we're moving into something that is going to radically change the world as we know it today. Yeah. And I think there are, um, I think it behooves those of us who do see those things to not necessarily speak out against that, but to prepare people in, in, in another way. Um, I, 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 you know, I listen to, uh, the words of Jesus to his disciples he knew what was coming down. He knew the end of the age was about uh, on them. And he prepared them in another whole way. And that's in, in the kingdom way. It's, it's lose yourself or find yourself, however you want to say that, mm -hmm. in the kingdom. And separate or divorce yourself from this world because... In just a few years, you're not going to recognize this world. That's it's right. going to be so radically different. And I, I, I think that's really our message. And, and I appreciate what you're saying. The, the arts and entertainment, they're, they're getting a hold of this thing, and they're warning us in all kinds of ways. But because they don't clean up their language or because there's a couple of sex scenes they throw into it or whatever... Christians don't want to watch those kind of movies and instead want to bury their head in the sand and say, well, nobody told me this was going to happen. Christians and, are just fetishistic. Uh, well, unfortunately, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, you definitely see see that that's headed that way. And that, that's why for me, um, it's it's so important to really get down the thing of, embracing peace mm -hmm. and and the, the whole thing of, of choosing the pathway of discipleship of genuinely nonviolence and and loving my neighbor not just in a in a theoretical way because i think with the way things are going temper tempers are going to flare very easily and i'm i'm having to learn now because this is the time to train not you know, as, as Jim, you know, you're a Marine that uh, you were in the past. You you train before you go into combat. You don't train during yes. combat. Yeah. And yeah. and this is the time to train, to learn to walk in peace, to learn to love my neighbor. That's right. Um, now, because when it hits the fan, it, it's too late. It's too late to figure it out. That's right. Yeah, that's the book I'm writing now. Is on The subtitle is Christian Discipleship in an Age of Crisis. That sounds great. Yeah. I'll keep yeah, getting in the script. You can critique it before we send it off. I'm researching right now in research mode, which includes reading a couple of your books, Michael, and that's part of my research, and, and many others also. But uh, I've outlined and started into a book that will be titled The Gospel According to Love. Very nice. And, yeah, I think, I think we have to warn people. And and I know that's another subject. Uh, that's another podcast. 
the gospel of peace, but uh, the whole proclamation that this time of year celebrates is peace has come to the earth. Yeah. Well, in 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 that spirit, we should. Uh, well, this is going to get published after Christmas, so hey, happy yeah. New Year! <laughs> right. Wow. Well, guys, we're actually already out of time. We're out of time. Yeah. So yes. For whatever it's worth, Happy New Year to everybody. Yes, and when this we'll just skip Merry this, Christmas, right? Because when this plays, you're you're already in the New Year. So uh, think back a couple weeks or whatever, and have it. I hope you had a Happy New Year. Um, it was great, great talking to you guys again as usual, and I hope you guys enjoyed. Uh, everybody out there listening enjoyed the conversation, and we will catch you again next week. 